this episode of The Interface, I speak with Brian Kirk, Chief Technology Officer for the Amphenol High Speed Group, which is part of the Amphenol Communications Solutions Division. Brian is based in Nashua, New Hampshire, and has been with Amphenol since 2004. We talk about his work with not only the high speed team, but the backplane team, the optics team, and the mezzanine products team. We talk about seeing a constant adjustment of system architectures, which always makes the job fresh. We talk about his time at the University of Vermont, including building and racing a solar powered car from New York to Philadelphia. We talk about being a teaching assistant at the University of New Hampshire when he first connected with Teradyne. We talk about how working with connectors may not seem exciting, but it gives him access to all the latest and greatest technologies. And we discuss his Desert Island album, book, and movie. This is The Interface. I like the fact that your microphone is just about as clear as mine, which is good to hear, finally. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look as good as yours, though. Nah, that's okay. <laughs> well, first of all, Brian, thank you for uh, deciding to do this today. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, and if you could tell everyone uh, what your job title is, who you work for, and just some of the things that uh, you are responsible for. Yeah, I'm the chief technology officer for the High Speed Group. So I work for uh, Rich Richitelli. And I previously was the director of engineering for kind of the high-speed I.O. products. Mm-hmm. And, and in this role, I, I cover both the high-speed I.O. products, but I also work with the backplane team, the optics team, and then what we call mezzanine, which is a kind of group of mezzanine connectors and sockets and, um, and, our, and some of our other cable teams and so forth. So what does a chief technology officer do? It sounds very in- intimidating for me because I have zero technical knowledge, yeah. basically. And so I hear that. And I'm like, man, he must be really smart and know all this stuff. Uh, is, is that true? Is that what you're I, saying? <laughs> I, I spend, I, I, I kind of split my time mostly between kind of internal engineering, you know, product development, kind of how we want to staff engineering, or if we're looking to bring in new equipment, new technology. Mm-hmm. And the other half with customers. So generally what, what we're doing a lot is constantly meeting with customers, getting their roadmaps, looking to see what what's kind of on the horizon that we need to get working on and developing. And in parallel to that, we, we then also contribute a lot now to standards efforts. So we lead a few standards efforts. And then uh, and all of it, you know, kind of makes a full circle of like, what are we working on? Is it aligned to the customers? Are we... Are we contributing to, you know, the broader audience of the industry and making ourselves known there? So, and then in some other work, I, you know, I do some work on mergers and acquisitions and some other areas, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't, it's enjoyable to kind of put the two together and see that what we're, we're working on really ties to what the customers are doing in the field. When you talk to people now about say two or three of the products that you're working on that you're most excited about, the ones that you want to brag about. Which ones would you talk about and could you tell us about them? Yeah, I guess what what's kind of generally exciting, I'd say even on the, the kind of role itself or I guess one of the reasons I really kind of enjoyed working here over the last 18 years is we see a constant adjustment of like the architectures. Mm-hmm. So we started off working on large systems, big backplanes. That was kind of our core business. And then as we as the speeds, which have kind of double every, you know, two to three years, it, it gets more challenging to run those uh, previous, we'll call them legacy architectures. So we went from a traditional sort of backplane structure with just 
all the cards plugging in the front and, you know, large cabinets to two orthogonal systems where we plug in cards from two sides of a system and we try to minimize the length of every piece of PCB trace. And that created a whole new set of connectors that we had to develop. And then now we're working on a lot of products that are just cable based. So our cable backplanes, a lot of our IO products where, you know, we had almost no cables inside the chassis. And now we see that that's kind of our largest explosion of new products. Mm. And it, and it, it, it means that where in some cases attaching the cables right to the chip packages, mm-hmm. whereas opposed to, you know, we really didn't have to integrate with the, like the, the chip companies of the world um, that built these large switches. We, we basically, you know, did the PCB work and designed the connectors around it and did a lot of customer support there. But now we, we have to actually work how do we attach to these really large complex packages that customers are building? And then there's, there's part where every, you know, year or so, or, or every generation, we lose a certain amount of length. We just can't make that length in copper anymore. Mm. And, and there's been all kinds of predictions about it, but we, we lose probably 30% of the length for each generation. So that means those architectures really don't, you know, we, we can't build a full cabinet from top to bottom with PCBs. So then we went to the orthogonal architecture and it, you know, you could kind of make the same structure, but you, you know, doing it with that style connector, you effectively shortened all the trace. Mm-hmm. And then, and then when that didn't carry further, not further enough along, we moved to cables and then, and then ultimately, you know, we lose a certain amount of optics every year. The interesting thing is in terms of like the engineering teams, you know, we, we started when I got here with a small group of electrical engineers, kind of heavily dominated by mechanical engineers. Over the years, we kind of balanced that out where we have as many electrical signal integrity engineers as mechanical engineers mm-hmm. in, some, in some places, maybe even more. And as we get into these even more complex interconnects with the optics or active copper cables and DSPs, now we're adding software engineers and firmware engineers to support that. So it's sort of kind of, driven like different architectural changes and it's it's driven how we structure the engineering teams uh different along each generation if you went back 5 10 15 years ago right and <laughs> had a conversation with a younger version of you and would tell him about the the speeds with which you're running these systems uh, and within the same envelope dimensions or you've even shrunk over the years. I mean, would your head have exploded? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. I get asked, like we, we give a couple of generic presentations. I did a couple at schools a couple of years ago. We had like all of our electrical engineers kind of around the world come into Nashua for a signal integrity uh, forum. And we went back and looked and it like, when I started out, we were, we were working on things like 30 megahertz yeah. um, and now we're working at 200 gigahertz. So we're, we're working on things 10,000 times faster. Yeah. So, so if you can imagine like a car, what if a car had kept up with that data rate, right? Like a car would go 10,000 times faster than it did before. You'd have cars going, you know, a million miles an hour. So yeah. it's um, yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, it definitely keeps it interesting, right? It's a little stressful because you're always redesigning the product and redesigning the product. And we're not exactly sure what makes it to, to every reach and length. And are we going to have to really redo the entire architecture every time? But, you know, that's what keeps us moving and keeps the job exciting. What part of your job are you more comfortable with or do you enjoy doing more? Do you, do you enjoy doing 
the the design and the electrical uh, engineering piece of it from a, a mechanic from the actual product standpoint, or do you get involved? I guess heavily too with the the process of putting these together from a manufacturing standpoint. I mean, which one are you more comfortable with? Do you like better? I definitely think from the kind of setting, like the product goal, kind of doing the initial architectures, working with the customer. That has, has sort of been my strength, I'd say. Yeah. And it, it's definitely a part I really have always enjoyed. I, ca- I came from working from Hewlett Packard and like big server companies. And, you know, you, you really didn't, occasionally we interface with the customers, but for the most time you were, you know, designing like kind of a, a, a general purpose product. And, and then it was kind of sold globally. He, you know, here, a lot of the products, even though they're general purpose, where we're architecting them to specific needs. So we, we don't, want a product usually to go to just one customer, but they're definitely into certain niches. So finding the right architecture, finding what works for each solution, you know, face-to-face with a customer, that that part I think has always been a part I kind of enjoyed from the beginning. But I, I would say that for me, I mean, kind of working at Amphenol and the, the role I've had for the last few years, you know, being able to travel around the world, you know, build up these engineering teams, you know, open up these factories and stuff. You know, I... I I, I say to people, it's like, we, we got to think, we got to think about how, the product we're designing, but at the same point, you know, we have to think about, do we have the right resources? Right. Do, we, do we have the right structure going forward? You know, and it's amazing to kind of hire, you know, we've hired hundreds of people and, you know, pe- most, almost everybody's kind of continually worked and stayed with us. So these, you know, you end up generating these friendships around the world. And I think that part is something, you know, didn't think about when I took the job, but it's been an amazing benefit. That's an interesting point because you're there in Nashua right now, and that's really the 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 center of excellence, I guess, for for lack of a better term, for for these types of products and this technology. I mean, you have, I'm sure, in the teams there, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of experience and engineering experience uh, from a design standpoint, an electrical standpoint, mechanical process, you name it. But like you said because of the success of Amphenol and expanding into newer regions and opening up new factories. How did you deal with that the first couple of times where you're like, I don't even know how we're going to get started here and, and try to find the right people. Yeah, that's, I started off, I came through the Teradyne acquisition here, mm-hmm. which was all mostly backplane products. So I spent the first five years or so working on backplane products and, and actually meeting with customers a lot. And they, they started actually requesting us to work on these external IO products. Mm-hmm. So I personally sort of shifted over to the external IO products and we, we, we combined the IO cables and connectors and had like some initial optics investments. And it was, we were a relatively small group. We had sparse factory space, I would say. We had just small portions of individual factories in Shaman and Shenzhen. So yeah, when I, went from an engineering role into kind of the director of engineering for that. I really didn't have any management experience. I really had, I always spent a tiny bit of time in factories, but I didn't have any, you know, really kind of trying to lay one out or work with people to kind of scale it up was, was new to me. So Mm -hmm. a lot of it was, you know, I spent the first few years back and forth to China, a significant amount of time. And, you know, as we kind of grew and found space and, you know, got the right people and, incrementally sort of built piece by piece. And then, you know, we, we sort of had to do that across four or five factories. And I was always more focused on the, the engineering side, but kind of the test and layout, some of these other areas, I definitely had to, had to kind of put a lot of influence, go through 
endless numbers of audits and things like that. So it was a great learning experience. I, I sort of, uh, kind of had to learn as I went a little bit more than I thought I would. Um, but it's, uh, it's something I look back at as a real positive time. And I think it kind of helps me today thinking about what are we doing next and are we prepared? Right. Yeah. Because you've been through those cycles before. So, um, if there is a chance for more expansion, which hopefully there is, then you've already been through that. But in, besides racking up a, a good amount of uh, miles on whatever airline you're using, <laughs> going back and forth to China, uh, who did you work with uh, most closely or, or a couple people that really helped you uh, indoctrinate you into this process? Yeah, oh, that that's a great question. We started off with a kind of a small team in, in Shenzhen, Oscar show who kind of runs that plant today. And I had a engineering manager there, Chigo, that uh, today runs the kind of larger group. And on that side, it was this, um, they had kind of a good system in place and we kind of continually scaled it. And, you know, and now we've kind of, I think we're on our third factory there now. And, and that was sort of, you know, we started as a subletter inside of ASCA and, 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 and slowly grew into our own team and, you know, put more automation and found more suppliers and kind of more natural organic growth there. On the cable side where we, we kind of had those separate, I mean, it was definitely a little bit more interesting. We, at first we had just a small floor shared with Assemble Tech. And then as we quickly outgrew that, we had to kind of put in cells our, a different structure. Uh, we had to find some we really had to find operations managers and as a fellow Jan Mo came over as a quality manager from Kodak. He's been with us for a huge number of years. He's really helped put in place a lot of processes and helped hire people. And, and another fellow Raymond Chung, who when we were struggling a bit, to be honest, he was based in Hong Kong and he, he worked for my boss at the time, Tom Pitton, uh, but he had helped run Asker for a while and had a ton of experience. So he he went into Shaman, which was supposed to be for two years, I think stayed eight years, and helped really build a team. And I think I think ultimately the coaching I, you know, got over the years and what I learned from, you know, Bill Doherty and Rick Schneider and other people was the ultimate goal has always been to to put the right team in place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those people and, you know, on the ground interviewing people and, and, and helping with that structure, you know, once we got the structure in place, it scaled relatively well. The first few years where we were trying to deal with those issues, it was definitely challenging. Above all else, it's always about the people, isn't it? And getting the right yep, team. Absolutely. So let me go backwards now. I mean, as the chief technology officer um, for the group. I imagine young Brian Kirk growing up was a fairly inquisitive uh, young man and liked to mess around with things and tinker and probably got into engineering at a young age. Or am I totally wrong with that? No, I I was one of those kids that was good at math and not so great at English and pretty much, you know, got pushed in, uh, maybe you should go in engineering from day one. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but on more of a kind of a fun side. I, you know, I was, as a kid, every time I got a new bike or I did something, I, you know, I would take it apart immediately or try to <laughs> replace stuff or to understand, like, you know, I, I always liked tinkering, things like that. I was always sort of building something and, and went into engineering, you know, with that, that mindset. Mm-hmm. I didn't. And then I, I oddly enough, I didn't really like the first few years of engineering at all. Um, Why's that? You know, we were sort of, more theoretical based. We weren't mm-hmm. really building any products. I went to school up at the University of Vermont. And then I, I kind of bounced around. I, I was pre-med for a while and I ended up doing biomedical. And oh, wow. It, it wasn't really sh- sure exactly what I wanted to do. But then 
we, uh, my senior year, we built a solar racing car. Uh, and it was, uh, we had to get a road registered and we, we raced it from New York city to Philadelphia. Whoa. Um, and we, we built it from scratch. We had to learn to weld the frames. And so that was kind of got me reinvigorated. I, I would say into engineering and, you know, we, I went up over every break, we worked every night, you know, and, you know, I was responsible for the electronics and kind of the, you know, electrical powertrain. but, but really, you know, it was just a full team effort of everybody learning how to, how to put put a car together. This is um, a, this was a contest. Yeah, it was an old contest they had for electric cars called the Tour de Soul. So you would oh great name. Would, they had electric cars like where they were just sort of battery powered, yeah. and then a lot of the the universities built these solar cars. So it had a big a big probably like a ten foot by six foot wide solar array like wing on the back. Holy cow! Um, it only sat a few inches off the ground. Yeah, three three wheels. And it, it went about 40, 45 miles an hour. I don't know. It was, it was great. We went down. We, we finished it the day before we had to leave. I, I went to graduation. The next day we packed up and we headed to New York City. And we started actually at the Twin Towers and raced out through the middle of Pennsylvania out towards Harrisburg and those areas and then, then down to Philadelphia. It, it was a blast. We, uh, we won the first day, I remember because we had to drive through New York city and we were a bunch of kids from the Boston area and everywhere else. So yeah. we, we, we were passing people in the wrong lane and <laughs> we basically won by driving skills and not being afraid of the, the city traffic. And then, and then uh, when we got out into the middle of, uh, of, you know, Pennsylvania and the other cars were perfect sunshine and everything else, since we were a brand new car, we, we had some issues. We broke down a couple times. We won the award for most efficient car because they would measure your battery when you, when you got finished. And our battery on the end day was completely full. It was completely full because we broke down on the side of the road and, and we're just charging as we tried to fix the car. <laughs> so we spent like three hours effectively trying to fix uh, something on the car, I remember, and it charged the batteries up. So we got the we got this big award at the end, which I was like, well, this, this seems like uh, should go to someone else. But we, we took it and had fun with it. I guess, uh, I don't know if I should say, unfortunately, we don't do solar for propelling vehicles uh i know we do electric and all that but yeah. would it even be feasible i guess you'd have a and there's a little the bit of a, problem yeah you know i think the idea is it's just supplementing the power source and yeah. stuff i mean this was a one person kind of car and you know yeah, the battery technology is so much better the batteries back then you know weight of you know how much power you could in storm per weight was kind of not where it is today you know it was fun to drive right it accelerated fast and everything all those other benefits you get of electric cars so you uh, get done with the Tour de Sol, which I love that name, uh, and then you get into the workforce. What were some of the early jobs that Actually, you Actually, I went to graduate school after okay. that. So I wasn't sure what to do, and then it was kind of, you know, not the best job market, I remember. So I applied to go to just get a master's degree, and I was just going to use it as a, a year or so to figure out kind of, you know, what to do and where to go next. Yeah. And then I got a, a teaching assistantship at the University of New Hampshire. Okay. So I, I ended up going to University of New Hampshire for a couple of years, getting a master's and thinking I was going to apply to medical school still because we were going to see surgeries kind of continuously. And I would go to Mass General, we'd go to these VA hospitals and see what they were doing. And we were testing like electrosurgical devices and stuff mm -hmm. and, and, and it just seen a wide variety of surgeries. So, so that, that kind of got me kind of reinvigorated into that part. I was mainly focused as a teaching assistant. So I taught a lot of the classes, which is actually how I got here mm. because I was a teaching assistant for okay. a few people at Teradyne. 
So over the years, then they, I kind of reconnected with them and came back here. I did that for a while. And then after I also was thinking, all right, well, maybe I'll apply to medical school again or apply for the first time. I stayed and I taught for another year there. And then I, because I had kind of taught a lot of the classes, I took the entrance exams to get a PhD. So I ended up doing that for a year or so, but then the internet bubble kind of started and I, uh, I was kind of the, a poor person in their mid twenties <laughs> and got a little sick of my, you know, $17 a week paycheck from the school or whatever it was. Yeah. So I, I ended up uh, going to uh, digital equipment corporation, which is the same building we sit in today. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Yeah. So this was, it was a big campus and uh, we had a couple thousand people here at least. And then it kind of went through this cycle of being acquired continuously. Mm-hmm. So I got acquired by Compact. And then internally, I actually had to go work for another company they acquired called Tandem. And then I got acquired, acquired by Hewlett Packard. And, uh, and it was almost like a regular rhythm of every 18 months, we got acquired by somebody else. So then I eventually they asked me to move to uh, to either Colorado or Texas, and we were my wife was pregnant with our second daughter, and I actually went back to school. At the, I I went back to school at that point mm-hmm. and finished my PhD, and then I, I went I built I went to a switch company for a while, which wasn't they were actually had just merged two companies together, and eventually uh, connected with some of my old friends from UNH that I had taught, and then actually came to Teradyne. And then immediately got acquired again. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. looking at the timing here, it looks like uh, it wasn't too long, probably within a year or so before Amphenol acquired Teradyne, right? Yeah, it was pretty quick. So yeah. that was, uh, you know, I was sort of, I, the, a lot of the folks at Teradyne obviously had worked there for years and years and, right. you know, very stable. And I had gone through a different company every 18 months without really moving that much. So it was, uh, you know. It wasn't a surprise to me. I think it was more of a surprise to other people to get acquired. But it was, uh, you know, I was at the point of thinking, geez, I'm never going to have kind of like a continuous stable <laughs> career in any company. And then, you know, then the, absolutely the best thing that happened was Amphenol acquiring us. Yeah. Um, why so is that? Been, From your point of view, why is that? Uh, the two parts is like, you know, inside of Teradyne or even in some of the other companies I kind of worked at, I would say we felt like a little bit of a, a support role, Right. Like sometimes developing hardware, and I, yeah, I was developing kind of hardware for supercomputers and and base stations, but the you know the final application and some other stuff really took front and center. And I think you know Amphenol's kind of core focus on interconnect, and you know it, it kind of bring us brings us kind of front and center, and kind of collaborating with people doing the same work, and you know, and I think the financial discipline and stuff, you know, all those other companies are sort of you know, no longer in existence, frankly. Mm-hmm. So uh, at least personally for me, this idea of, you know, making sure we have kind of the financial discipline and making sure that, the, you know, what we're working on is really driving some end results um, in allowing us to kind of invest and grow. And, you know, obviously we've grown huge compared to where we started. The stability of it and just the excitement of it's been terrific. For me personally, and I think other people here is like, you know, I, we would build one server every you know, three or four years and you had spend maybe a small amount of time with customers, but most of the time in the lab and, you know, a little bit insulated from everything else here. It's mm-hmm. every day talking to customers about the latest yeah. and greatest next right. exciting thing. You know, we start to become 
like a part of their design process, right? Certain customers that are very well known kind of call us with, hey, here's some generic concepts. Is this feasible? Does this fit? So instead of kind of being focused on like one machine for five years, Mm -hmm. you get to see just, you know, what all these different people are doing and kind of influencing it. And, you know, I I was a little suspect when I came to like, is connectors going to be exciting enough to kind of work on? Yeah. In actuality, it turns out I see probably 10 times the amount I did when I just worked on a, you know, on a singular large machine. Um, So for me, you know, it's kept, uh, it's kept it interesting for 18 years now. So I have no complaints about that. I've heard that sentiment echoed many times in, in these interviews with engineers, especially is, you know, no one starts their career thinking, oh, it's going to be great. I'm going to be a, you know, a designer of connectors and interconnect products. I was like, well, what is that? That's just a, you know, that's a component to the system that I really want to be a part of, whether it be, you know, a, a spaceship or, or a, a network server or whatever it may be. But you're, you're absolutely right. You get to see and touch 10 times, 20 times more of the coolest technologies on the planet because you're, you know, you're in the technology of interconnect design. That's a great thing, I would imagine, for an engineer. Yeah, I, you know, every once in a while I give talk to some students and some other things, but the uh, kind of the analogy I use or the little game I guess we play is, um, you know, a lot of people kind of say I want to do something that's going to make a difference or, you know, either it be green energy or, or something in that path. But yeah. I always kind of start with like, you know, did anybody use like Google today? And, it's you know, pretty much everybody's hand will go up in the room or did anybody make a cell phone call? you know, in any of these areas of the world. And it's like, and then you realize pretty much every person in the room touches something you worked on many times a day. Yeah. And, you know, compared to other industries that might be a little bit more niche and so forth, um, the reach that we have and what it actually goes to is it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to think about it that way. Yeah, no, I agree. So when you're not um, at work, in your home with the family or just on your own time, what do you like to do just to relax? I try to play, you know, I do different sports and stuff. I kind of rotate around season to season. Mm-hmm. I used to, I used to play on a couple of hockey teams, but that as we traveled more and more, that became kind of difficult. So I, uh, I, I play a little bit of golf and uh, over the last few years, I've done a, a lot more fishing. Oh, um, okay. Did you play hockey growing up? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, that's where I was a lot more interested in, you know, playing hockey than doing anything else in my life. So I played usually a couple teams at a time, you know, started skating and, you know, three or four years old. And original goal was to kind of go play hockey in college and uh, yeah. knew that it had an end point. So eventually had to go do something for real. Sure. I mean, did you, I know Vermont's pretty good hockey. I mean, did you play there or no? No, I, we actually, we had a, we had a, a interesting team of us where I got up there and I was, talking to a couple other schools about playing at and then uh, went to Vermont and, and decided uh, and my, my brother was playing college hockey at the time. And he was like, it's, it's not as enjoyable getting up at six in the morning and mm-hmm. traveling on weekends and doing whatever else. So I, uh, I, you know, had made the decision not to play, but they had a whole bunch of people that were uh, some people were for one reason or another that were on the varsity hockey team uh, they couldn't play and either eligibility issue or something. And then they, at, at the point they cut the JV program. So there was this big pool of hockey players yeah. and, uh, and a few guys that, in, 
you know, multiple people actually like even drafted into the NHL actually formed like a little outside league. So we had an outside mm. league. So we played like Sunday nights and stuff. And, uh, it was, it was great. It was like kind of perfect, right. It was enough to kind of keep me excited about playing and, uh, but not to the point where, you know, I had to get up at six in the morning and go to the gym <laughs> and put that much dedication into it. Okay. Fair enough. So we'll, we'll end with this then. All right. If I gave you a little break and put you on a deserted Island by yourself, you got no one around, you just hang out and relax and chill. But I said, okay, Brian, you could bring with you three things, one album, one book, one movie. We'll start with an album. What album would you bring with you? That's a good one. I don't know. I, I guess I'd say Jack Johnson, something that, that. Oh, you go literal. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's island music, right? Yeah, Keep sure. the theme, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, book. I actually started rereading a book I read a little while ago called The, the Wise Men. It was it's a book on uh, people that were kind of, advising the president different presidents through the years and uh yeah it's uh but it has this really strong tie into russia and some other things so Mm. it's uh a book i read a few years back and actually was just kind of rereading it so that that one's kind of top of the list for me now and then uh movie that's interesting one uh i don't know i always watch the godfather yeah that's every we were watching it again every time i pass by it so that's one of my favorite movies (laughs) so i guess those would be maybe my three items okay no great choices and The Godfather, because it's three plus hours, would certainly take up a little bit yeah, of time. Yeah, exactly. So. Either out of the castaway, I guess, maybe. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> tutorial. So. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. try to find a volleyball and, yep. and, uh, yeah, and entertain be- yourself. Yeah, exactly. so that's great. Well, listen, Brian, I appreciate you doing this today. Uh, it was a great conversation. Uh, definitely learned a lot. And um, I, I thank you. And hopefully we get to meet in person here sometime soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for inviting me to do it.